Good day, friends. Welcome to the Swimming in the Ocean of Consciousness podcast. I'm your host, Elcio Eber, transformational author, speaker, and life coach. Allow me to be a guide as you discover your higher self and your magic within. Good day, Marty, and welcome to Swimming in the Ocean of Consciousness podcast. I'm very pleased to have you on the show today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. No, my pleasure to have you. It's been a long time since you and I have spoken, and I know we've been keeping in touch via social media and supports, but we initially met about 20, 21 years ago when I first uh, decided to relocate to the U.S. permanently to try to build a life for myself. I had this dream of the white picket fence and achieving American dream and so I came up in midwinter in New York and then that led me to renting a townhouse to my friend in Troy Michigan and that's how we met but before we get into a little bit more how we met I'd like to introduce you to the audience and have you introduce yourself so this is Marty Bernstein Marty can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do yeah I've done many things uh, over the years I've had several careers some have been good some have been not so good, but I've always kept focusing on moving forward, never looking behind. I am now in my last career, which has been one of the most productive and the happiest for me, both personally and professionally, and that has been as a freelance automotive writer. Uh, And uh, I may be the oldest automotive writer still writing for major publications as I turned 87 in June. Wow, congratulations on that. Amazing. And uh, other than I've had to cut back extensively on my writings five years ago in the process of what was, quote, a routine piece of surgery, close quote, the surgeon failed to pre-medicate me for the operation use iodine transfer dye in the procedure, which killed my kidneys, or I would still be active on the automotive circuit, writing for Bloomberg, Business Week. Uh, I was the first ad critic for automotive news. I wrote for Automobile Magazine. I've written for Japanese magazines. I was, for several years, the editor of the Rolls-Royce magazine out of India. It's, it's been a career based on advertising and creativity in and out of various ventures, as I mentioned earlier. It's, uh, and, uh, and so here I am today. Uh, I am writing an article this afternoon for Auto Dealer magazine of an interview I did with the head of Toyota Motors. And that's sort of the arc of my career since college. Wow, interesting. Well, Marty, um, that, that's an interesting life and I'm, I'm totally amazed. And so that, that'll be a nice transition into how we met and our friendship. So, um, you know, like I was trying to say earlier, I, I transitioned to the U.S. Uh, to start a new life about 21 years ago. I uh, landed in Manhattan and had uh, no idea midwinter. I just knew um, I needed a change in my life at that point in that place that I was at. Um, and I kind of look at my life in chapters. And I believe um, at that point in my life, I was coming to the end of my first chapter in my early 20s. 
took out a teenager life out of high school, started trying to get a career together, trying to figure out who I was. And that led me into chapter two of my life, which is from a young man to a mature man. And that's where I knew New York was not where I would need to be. I know something wrapped around that. A friend of mine had a, a townhouse in Troy, Michigan, and he said, Elsie, you know, you seem like you're trying to situate yourself and figure out where you're at right now, where you need to be, rather than not knowing what to do in New York, I have a townhouse that I'm not using in Troy, Michigan, would you like to come and rent it? And I never been to Michigan, but I said, sure, let's do it. And I went over there and never saw a winter that that has been with such a snow and everything. <laughs> I then the townhomes uh, property had some tennis courts back then. And it, even though it was winter, I found myself going and hitting the ball on the, the wall. And then I met you one day in between that process. And we started a conversation which led to our friendship. So that's how we met. <laughs> the, uh, that, that serendipitous meeting that we had, I was a middling tennis player, loved the game, and I was trying to improve my uh, serve. And I had a basket of balls and I'm banging them out. And you came up to me and said, do you mind if I give you a couple of hints? I said, no, I'd be delighted. Thank you. Well, one week later, I had an, a, an everyday Sunday tennis match with my son, who was 6'5 and a natural athlete. And you know, I'm far from being 6'5. And suddenly I'm serving. And he looked at me and said, Dad, where did you get that serve? He said, you're spinning it. You're making it go where you want it to go. And I beat him one and two. And <laughs> I, uh, up until I got sick, I was playing probably uh, averaging out at least three times a week, both winter and summer. But when I became ill, uh, I gave up the game of tennis, unfortunately. But uh, you made my last uh, career, or not a career, my last hobby as a tennis player, superb, because I could serve very well, and that's, that's half of the game. No, oh, and you're right. Yeah, you're most welcome, Marty. And yeah, that's just, uh, for all of my tennis teaching career, 26 years now, see, my relationship with tennis has always been throughout my whole life, because ever since a child, I grew up in a tennis family that owned and ran tennis business, tennis shop, tennis teaching services. My uncle played professional tennis back in the late 60s, early 70s, until an injury. And so I grew up in and with tennis, and it was always a passion. But teaching was something I busted into at 16, because uh, I was working the front desk of my uncle's tennis club. And he had a shortage of one of his teaching clothes to show up. And he, he asked me, he said, I got to be somewhere else. I need you to do this. And I said, I've never given a tennis lesson before. And I was tossed onto the tennis court, um, and I found out in that moment at 16, teaching a group of kids, that I was a natural, natural teacher, natural mentor. I took a deep breath, and it just sort of came natural to me. And in the process from there to where we, we met, I've been through a lot in life. I've had a injury, a spinal injury that led to my spinal surgery, to where doctors didn't expect me to be able to recover or play tennis again. And mm. Yeah, and so I refused to give up because I had this dream of becoming a tennis professional and a high-performance coach. And that's where I went really deeper into spirit and into self, and I found the strength to heal my body enough that I could continue to do what I wanted to do. And then in the process of the second chapter of my life, the last 20 years, 
had been me defying what doctors said I couldn't do and just going out into the world on my own and trying to make a career. So when we met and I gave that advice, it was because I was really deep in that place where I was coming from the healing and that healing had me consciously learn the biomechanics of the body, the breathing, and how to use the body effectively and efficiently. And so what I realized when I was healed good enough to start to do light runs and start teaching again, I just sort of was able to look at a student or a client or like in your situation, just anyone on a public court that I would see and see, oh my gosh, uh, I could see exactly where the errors are coming from. And many people look at it, oh, I hit the ball wrong, I made the contact. But a lot of the time, it's biomechanics. They're not in the right physical position in relation to the ball and what they want to do to the ball to make that shot work. So I had this thing where I just couldn't help stop giving advice. And when we met, I said, hey, I see what you're doing. Let me help you out there, Mike. <laughs> but Thank it, you again. <laughs> yeah, it all stems from my spinal surgery and having to recover and learn how to live again from a place of self and spirit. And how do I share that with the world? I remember we met, because at the time we met, it was just all coming back to me. I was just starting to move again. And I knew that I couldn't make a life in the Caribbean and I needed to come to the US. And I was was calling it at the time, the Tower of Tennis Method. And I remember you told me, yeah, it sounds great, but you got to kind of shorten that name a bit, or you got to make it like, And we, so we got into talking about the Tao, the Tao Tennis was really just the idea of truth above oneself, truth above others, and the Tao meaning universal way. So I wanted to connect the way of tennis, the way of the ball. How do you become one with the ball and not do it as if you have to stop and then hammer the ball with everything you have? I wanted to create a very smooth, rhythmic flow and connection between one's consciousness, thinking process, the physical body, and connecting to a ball in motion. You were probably unknowingly an acolyte of a a man who passed away a couple of years ago, uh, a tennis coach named Fig Braden. Have you ever heard that name? Yes, yes, I remember when he passed, yes. And he was, uh, when I started to take up the game when I was in my early 40s, I went to his camp in in Southern California, and shortly thereafter, with another partner, we put together a television series called Celebrity Game Set Match, with Jack Kramer coaching one player or, or, or one team, and Vic coaching the other player or team at La Casa. It was uh, a lot of fun, lost a lot of money, but it was... Uh, and an interesting thing, and he has yet to be replaced, to my knowledge, on the on the national scheme as somebody to go to to help your game with biomechanics and and proper thinking. Uh, as a matter of fact, I was watching the U.S. Open. I'm sorry, the Aussie Open a couple of weeks ago, and I think it was uh, Cliff Drysdale who mentioned there's been nobody on the scene to replace Vic. Maybe that's something, uh, I don't know how you would get into it, but it, it would seem to be with, with your philosophy and the fact that you can show improvement in players based upon 
not just lifestyle, but how you go at the how you go at the game as well as your own life, being more productive uh, than you ever thought it could be. Yeah, no, you know, it's very interesting, Marty, because that kind of leads to you know twenty one years later here, living in Seattle, Washington, we have uh, first of a what's expected to be five day snowstorm, and that's what I was joking about. It's not even though it's a snowstorm here and when school shut down, everything's down, but it's nothing like what I got in Michigan. But oh, no, we're I'm working on a book release, and that's why I was very happy to talk to you as an author, because um, this is a teaching memoir of my life, and like I said, all of that spinal surgery stuff and how I got here and what I call energy body activation. And But I've taken a step back from being a tennis, health, and fitness teaching professional and I took a few months to reconnect and find myself. I, after 21, uh, 26 years teaching professionally, I found myself lost, Marty. Um, and I was no longer enjoying what I was doing. And there was this sort of a battle with myself inside. I call it like a wrestling with a stranger in the darkness. I, a part of me that is essentially who I am needed to come out and come to life. And I was suppressing that all my life to live my passion, and I wasn't living by my spiritual gift. I felt lost in the, the tennis world. I, I, uh, I didn't know where to go anymore. <laughs> um, I got to the point, the last project I'm currently working on is, I, that's why I took a break from it, because I needed to, to think clearly, how can I be now of use with all that I am to the tennis industry? And so I was working on my own tennis club acquisition here in Seattle, Washington call it the PNW Competitive Tennis Academy, uh, which is Pacific Northwest uh, Competitive Tennis. Um, and I wanted to do kind of like what you're saying. It's like, how do I take um, all of these years of experience in health, fitness, tennis, mechanics, and create an environment, a club where individuals, kids, uh, families can come in, but the learning is based on the person's individual relationship with the ball and the game can grow from that perspective versus from just a commercial perspective. And so I took a step back uh, to focus on the memoir and establishing myself as a author, keynote speaker, and a life coach because um, all of my life experiences have come to this moment where I'm finally dealing with a asking myself those difficult questions that I needed to grow in this third chapter after my divorce and in my now what I call mature years. My birthday is coming up on March 1st and I'll be 42. But, you know, you, you talked about being 87 and still living the best days of your life. And, and this is what I'm trying to do. I don't want to live an unhappy life anymore. And I'm trying to find my best balance and best self. And, Randomly, you know, you and I haven't spoken in depth besides the social media, but what you just said was was very connected to me because I, I'm trying to figure out that same thing. Like, as a keynote speaker, as an author, as a life coach, with 26 years of high-performance tennis, fitness, health coaching experience, I need to figure the best blending of those two things that I can be of use to the tennis industry and the world. And I'm trying to... That's something I'm working with. So that's why talking with you was something I wanted to do just as a friend, but also you have had life experience like you spent doing all these TV shows and books and writing and other things. And yeah, so what you just said with Jack Kramer is very true. I, it's what frustrates me with the tennis game of 
today and what I see being taught because it's all, I call it commercial because they're all just trying to repeat what they see Rafa Nadal doing and not realizing Rafa's lefty and he has a particular genetic structure and the way you see him walk and the way he moves. So that's why he, he plays and hits the ball a certain way. It's not logical for you to take a six-year-old and, and try to just go and take a perfectly normal person and say, hey, this is how you need to learn to play and this is what the game should be. I see it evolving into this thing that it shouldn't be and I don't know if I can connect to it anymore in that sense because I believe you have the court, you have the ball, and the individual finds the best of themselves in learning how can they play the ball to perfection. It means first serve in, you're trying to get an ace or you're trying to hit such a ball that that person is a complicated situation to put that ball back and play. And when they do, you already have calculated where their return could potentially be. Get yourself in position, what I call on point to target. Get yourself in position where you're balanced, you're ready. So when the ball hits the ground, you're able to make contact with the direction, the spin and the speed necessary to hit a winner off of that third stroke. You served at the first, they return it on the second, you're hitting the winner on the third ball. If not, now they're going to hit the fourth and you're going to have to struggle and reposition to get yourself to play the fifth ball in play on that point. And this is not being really taught. It's just the loopy ball, the spinny ball. It's just the craft of the game, the, the poetry of the game, the mental, physical strength and connection that has to come together to, to make the game what it once was, I think is being taken away and it's being made into this show. <laughs> I don't know if you see it happening when you watch tennis, but you know, I don't see much at it's a proper athleticism and hustling and, and really just good stuff in there. It's just a lot of sliding and sloopy spins and stuff like that. So it's one of the reasons that um I uh, get national statistics from the uh Sporting Goods Manufacturers Association. And the last time I I looked at their annual review was that uh, there has been a decline in active tennis players and the uh, tennis manufacturers uh, have uh, slowed down production, et cetera, which to some people would say, well, that, that's something bad. I look at something like that as, as an opportunity to uh, go in and do something, even if it's, and I've uh, had a couple of people ask me uh, over the years, how do I become a writer? And I said, well, to write, you've got to read first. And then you've got to practice writing. And the more you read, the better able you're going to be able to write. And I've had some people get very annoyed with me. Well, how did you become a writer? I said to, uh, I was offered uh, serendipitously. I've, I've been primarily in advertising my entire career. I, uh, somebody said, would you like to review automotive advertising for Automotive News Magazine, which is the world's largest automobile magazine? If you write a couple of reviews for me and I like them and my boss likes them and his boss likes them, uh, you're going to have a weekly byline column with your photograph and I'm going to pay you a dollar and a half a word. Now, this is 20 years ago. And I thought, I've never had to write that much, but this sounds interesting. And it turned out to be uh, both a challenge and an opportunity. And 
it gave me a lifestyle very few people ever uh, have because uh, I wouldn't let my own negativity, and I don't know if I can do this or not, get in my way of overcoming my own uh, feelings of limitation and going forward. And by the end of my first year uh, as, quote, an automotive journalist, I had established who I, who I was, what I wanted to be. And for the next 21 years, I got a brand new car every Monday of the week, every week, 52 weeks a year with a full tank of gas insurance. And it could be anything from a little Mazda Miata to a Rolls Royce Corniche. I was traveling 150,000 miles a year, first class to world-renowned resorts, uh, driving a new car for three or four street. Fly out one day, drive the car the second day, come home the come home the third day, and uh, business class or first class, and only had a word write four or five hundred words about the car that I drove, and everyone was happy. It's taking what's out there and making it work for you, doing something that that somebody else isn't doing. There are thousands of people that know a lot more about automobile mechanics and how they work and why they work and the technology of them. I took the opposite approach to writing. I became the guy that interviewed the chief executive officers or the chief marketing officers of of every major car company in in the world. And that required a certain presence. Most automotive journalists look like they slept in their jeans and hoodies, and they go in to meet uh, the president of Toyota, and he's wearing a a, a $3,000 suit, an expensive watch, because he can't afford it. He's making a couple hundred Gs a year, and you come in, and you look like you're barely surviving, and he's going to give you a very short shrift. I had run my own business. I had... Uh, an extensive wardrobe, and it's some of those things in certain areas that mean a lot. And as a result, I became uh, on a first-name basis with some of the leading automotive executives of the last of this century. But it was all because I didn't let them intimidate me. I said that I was their equal, and yes, they're making more money than I am, but they're not having as much fun as I'm having. Because yeah. if you don't have fun in what you do, you don't have a life. No, very true. Very true. And that's what I'm saying. I'm at the point where in that transition, I am having fun in doing this podcast, in writing the book and telling the memoir, and speaking about the surgery and the struggles and how I physically overcame and how I turned that into what became a successful tennis business in California and tennis academy and grew from there into running tournaments and trying to buy the ball machine company. And it's just been that forward movement. And I'm starting to enjoy the stuff I do now. And I'm trying to learn how can I blend that with my not assisting knowledge of 26 years tennis health fitness. And I think what you're saying really makes a lot of sense because I'm trying to really essentially be that coach, that go-to coach, or like you said, uh, 
expert opinion that they're not getting right now. And it's just about how do you make those connections between the two worlds. But um, what you're talking about, Marty, is exactly what I was hoping that you can talk to. It's about all of that you just explained and how you went through and how you still find yourself in this niche where you're having fun, you're living from your place of joy, your place of sense, but you're doing it as an automotive writer when you know, you know, you're coming from that other background and there's all these younger guys. But I like how you, you, you mentioned that part because I do see that a lot. I do see where today people just don't take the time to, to put themselves together proper and to carry themselves in a proper way. It's just being too accepted of this laid back casualness of how you professionally carry yourself. So that makes a lot of sense to me. It's uh, no, no matter what industry you're in, uh, we uh, just visited a, a friend uh, in the hospital who, who had major back surgery. And uh, this is a woman of a certain age. And, uh, and she said, doctor, whatever his last name was, she says, he comes in here and you know he is good because that suit costs more than my car. <laughs> I mean, it's, there is the aura of success. And even if you haven't been successful, you have to develop that aura yourself. And people will come, if you say you're good or the best in the field and you can back it up after you say it, uh, you're going to achieve success given the right opportunity. And sometimes uh, you you have to develop your own opportunities to get name recognition. For instance, if I were you, which I'm obviously not, I'd look at Tennis Magazine at their instructive coaches, and I'd start to write some magazines literally on every uh, follow-up to every issue saying, well, why did he say to do this? I believe it's better done this way. It's controversial, but you're going to annoy the publisher and the editor to the point they may reach out and contact you. And at least you're getting your name out there on a national basis. Yeah. I'll think about it. I'm not sure that's the route I want to go into though. Um, I'm trying to, I want to see if I could step away from that for a bit and just focus on the, the development of the individual as a person in Ooh, that, life sense, because that's well, where my strength is right now is where my heart is right now is in doing the life coaching work and from there, I think then I could look again at the tennis industry and see how best I can be a part of it. Life coaching is, is very important. And there are literally thousands of organizations that are looking for guest speakers at their meetings uh, to, so that you develop, uh, for lack of a better description, your presentation. My uh, wife uh, collects depression glass, which is a very arcane hobby to have. But there's 50, 60, or 100 women in her organization, and they're always looking for not just people that are experts in glass and pottery, but just for speakers to come and give them focus. And it's all in developing the pitch. When you look at the 
televangelist of the last century that was so successful, the Swaggers and the Jim Browns, etc. Yeah. They had a pitch. It was smooth as glass, and they knew what worked to motivate the people to, after their, after their speech or their presentation, to sign up for a class, to buy the book, to get the videos, whatever. It's honing your skill as a public speaker and as a life coach that you can go out and say, when I work with an individual in such and such, we did such and such. Yeah. It's, it's those, those success stories that will uh, pay off. It's uh, casting your bread upon the water. Sometimes you get back soggy bread, but sometimes you get back something good. I understand, Mark. That's great. No, um, I think you're absolutely right. And that's why I said I want to focus more on this craft and, like you said, keynote speaking, because that's the first keynote that I'm actually working on right now is really capturing that, what we're calling it, the story behind the story and the energy body activation. And that's really touching back to laying on that surgery bed and not feeling your legs after a spinal surgery and, you know, your life flashes before you and trying to come from that to being able to then get back to teaching, get back to playing, get back to running. And that is the aspect of my life that I'm currently trying to get comfortable sharing with the world because, you know, you start opening up your soul and your personal side and it's in learning how to write about those things and how to speak from that place of motivation and inspiration because I, I want to tell my story in such a way, like you said, I can get a corporate keynote speaking position because I'm not making something up. This is actually just talking about who I am, my life, the experience, and how do I move forward with all of this knowledge, all of this experience, and coming from a place where I feel spiritually full and energized to share something greater and it, whether it just be in the life coaching aspect or if i can also incorporate maybe then then reaching out to the tennis magazine and then connecting with them from an established place with the book the podcasts the e-courses and as a life coach transformational author see how i can blend that work with the, the professional tennis side of things but Go ahead, Mike. I uh, and I uh, do believe you're in the right place at the right time to go forward with your idea of, of what you want to do. There's a uh, you're at a perfect age now. You're mature. You, you've uh, you've had success. You know where you want to go, and many people uh, live uh, lives of uh, quiet desperation. They have no idea. What, what they want, where they go, they're, they're going to try and stay with the company for 30 years so they get the gold watch and their retirement. But unfortunately, those days are over. Yeah, yeah. You got you to gotta make a way. You got to make your own sort of path. I, I believe the world's in a, in a state of transformation on, on a greater scale. And that's why all these systems are changing. People aren't awake and attuned enough at this point, unfortunately. And yeah, I would, everyone's just sort of thinking it's, it's, it's going to always be the way it was. And that's unfortunately not what history teaches us because life has always been changing. And sometimes when we're at these types of crucial times, we're, we're, so it's a, we're heading into 2020 soon, you have to expect 
transformation. You have to expect change of growth and future thinking. And I want to be part of that flow. You know, how can I get people ready into viewing? And that's why I said, you know, I'm 42 on March 1st, and I'm speaking to you as a friend, and you're 87. You've seen the world almost twice as much as I've been here. You know, so there's something to speak in volume for your experience and about life itself and the transformation of your life when you were my age or when you were 20 to where you are now, you know, and that's where I'm at and that's what I'm trying to connect and share with the world. When I was 40 years old, I was a senior vice president of a major advertising agency here in Detroit working on the Chevrolet account with John DeLorean. And uh, they had sent me to the Harvard Business School, and I, I was the uh, the corporate SOB that that went in to analyze a division, a department, and an individual account, and why isn't it profitable, and why isn't it productive? And nobody would have would have lunch with me. I mean, that was that's oversimplification. But uh, I uh, I hit the big four zero, and I went in and uh, I resigned. I was making a very nice salary, and it was uh, it was an immature step forward to become mature, which is the best way of positioning it. But uh, it uh, there were there were ups, there were downs, but you have to learn. To learn that's what life is, and life is uh, cycles. But it's your experience with your hospitalization and back problems after a certain age. There are more back problems uh, in the senior citizens category, which uh, I have a very dear friend who is a retired orthopedic surgeon who had made, he had one physician that he would refer his patients to because he didn't feel qualified to do the back repair that was needed. He had a, a major back problem. He went to this guy that had been his go-to guy and he wound up wrecking his back oh my and his uh concept is and he's now crippled he's he's on a on a walker living in southern florida but he had to give up his medical license and a few other things but in, in talking to him recently he said i wish i had better preparation for my back surgery which is an interesting thing. He, he said, if I had done six weeks worth, worth of physical training, uh, he said, I think I would have had better results from my surgery. And maybe I, I'm simply throwing that out as, as something to become an expert on that becomes part of your presentation. I see what you're saying. No, I don't. What your friend was saying was true because, you know, I was, the time I was, I was active and teaching tennis and playing tennis and running. But what I did have in that moment, because it was the surgery was sort of quick, necessary thing, because I just sort of started losing sensation in my right leg going down to the toes and I couldn't feel, I couldn't feel the nerve had gotten blocked. And the doctors said, you have two choices. If you leave it as it is, you'll sever that nerve and you'll lose all connection to the leg and you'll just sort of have, you know, like it's not useful. Or we go in and we try to fuse the urination and release the pressure off that point. But 
the smartest part, the thing that the blessing for me then was that the doctor at the time in Puerto Rico that did the surgery and had a conversation with my grandma about if I rush back after the surgery and leave right away, my chances for attaining full recovery and what I wanted was less. And if I was able to just stay under his care in the hospital a few extra weeks so he can monitor me and help me with physical therapy directly after the surgery, my chances would increase. And she said, yeah, let's do whatever it takes. And she stayed with me by my bedside. That instead of weeks were turned into two to three months of the beginning stages of that recovery that was necessary. But the hardest part for me was me, and this is not the LCO or the body, but when I close my eyes or when you close your eyes, the person that I am inside, but when I know of myself, had to struggle, Marty, to, to get up from that situation, to rise up and to take that body and say, I am going to sit up. That was a difficult thing. And, you know, I cried many nights in the bed because they would give me morphine like every four hours. And the doctor realized there's something strange about my body. He said, I've never seen anyone adapt medications. Okay. The pain went from being severe every four hours to being severe every three hours. Then he mm-hmm. touched the morphine dose. And then all of a sudden the pain just became crucial. And he said, you know, you, you've got to, he said, you got to kind of heal the body and you've got to kind of close that, that, that wound several point where the pain was, but not giving up on yourself inside in those moments when your body needs healing or making a connection that the healing will not only come from the body, but the healing will come from a place that gives the body life itself, that internal place where you are, where you reside within yourself. And I think it was the love of my grandmother, never giving up on me. She stayed by my bedside for three months in the hospital until I learned mm-hmm. strength enough to stand to, to walk. But she's always, every day, she would bring me a book or she'd go to the mall and get me books to read and into the things I wanted to learn and which was, you know, I got into a lot of Eastern philosophy uh, to, to try to learn better how to use what they call Kundalini or key energy or life energy and to enhance that with my tennis health and fitness knowledge that I already had is where Tao Tennis was born uh, when the physical therapist said, you know, we brought you as far as we can. And I don't think you'll ever play tennis or run again. You just have to accept that. You might have to have a cane or something. And I said, no, I, I've got to go play. I got to go play tennis. I got to be a tennis professional. I got to do this. <laughs> I refused to accept it. So that's where then I started to realize that this maybe there's something more to what I was learning. And we live across the beach from in St. Martin is this beach and we live across them. And so it was easy for me to get to the ocean. And my grandma would say, you know, She'd have uh, someone help me to go to the beach and just go into the water up to your, your waist and just let, let the naturalness of the waves take the least of gravity and move the body. And from in the water, I started to learn how to move again and to walk lightly up the shore because I had the support of the water. And it's in those little movements of never giving up on myself and learning how to reconnect with my body from an internal place, energetic place, from a life energy place, that I feel something, something happened inside where it, it my resistance to, to not wanting to stay in that place and understanding that I was more than just the, the, the body that was injured. There were several layers to me that, that was still alive 
that was still uninjured and that we, we could, I could connect those parts together, I could create a healing in the physical body that would help me to achieve what I wanted to, which was, I did it for 20, I've been doing it for 21 years here in the U.S. And that's why I come to the point where I've been doing it so long, I, I lost the joy in it. And I, I had to find a new way to, to take that knowledge and, and make it useful. And, and I'm, I'm doing that with this swimming in the ocean of consciousness work that I do. It, it, I would say that you're on the right path going toward uh, your objective or, or your goal, uh, what you want to do with the balance of your life, which is uh, a decision some people never, ever make. And they, they uh, slip and wishy-washy and, and flounder. I compliment you and congratulate you on your rededication and your focus. And based upon this conversation, I do believe that you will uh, achieve your personal success, what you want to do, and will and will help many others reach theirs. Yeah, like I said, it's just share. It's you know, it's like kind of like with you, Marty. Uh, you said at eighty-seven and still really enjoying what you do, uh, automotive writing. But it's coming from a place of joy. It's coming from a place where you've lived and you've breathed and you can look back at all these youngsters where you have that experience with you. And so it's the same sort of joy that I feel when I do this kind of work. And, and it's, it's all this knowledge, like I said, it's, it, but it's from so many different areas, you know, there's the tennis professional area, there's the health professional area, there's the fitness professional area, there's the wellness professional area, there's the life coaching professional area. And I'm, I've had so many successes in, in so many different areas that I'm, I'm trying to blend them all to find that one voice or the best way that I can take that message and share with the world the sum of my knowledge, the sum of my wisdom, the depth of my soul and make it where it's an inspiration, it's a motivation. And when I deliver that speech, like you said, I, I can inspire others to healing. I can inspire others to awareness of themselves and to at least to make the next step necessary. And you said one thing that, that resonates with me that I really want to hold to is, you know, connecting inside of me courageous enough to do that thing that might seem undoable or scary, but it, it brings you joy at the same time and it, it connects you to something that you feel gifted at. And that's, that's where I'm at right now. And I'm being brave and courageous and just moving forward uh, with my gift and with my my connection to spirit and sharing my message of healing, sharing my message of overcoming difficulties from my spinal sinus, from the divorce, from all these other things that I feel chapter two of my life has closed. And I, I know I say 42 and it's like a big thing, but um, it's chapter three, you know, I'm starting that third chapter at 42. Um, my, some people think it's, it's old, but to me, I'm, I still feel there's something inside of me to, to share and to give the world. And I want to do that in a pure play. I can, all I can do is compliment you on your focus and uh, wish you well. And Marty, I truly appreciate it. And I truly appreciate you joining me in Swimming in the Ocean of Consciousness and sharing with me your life experience and the fact you're still at it, you know, and still doing well. Yeah, I hope we can have a conversation again. And I thank you for joining me. I would look forward to it. Once again, congratulations and uh, stay focused, my friend. And you'll do you will achieve what you want. Thank you, Marty. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye.
Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Swimming in the Ocean of Consciousness podcast. It was truly a pleasure to be your guide. Please do join us next time for another eye-opening episode. Until then, please remember to thread water lightly and always be kind and loving to self. Thank you.